0: and diabetes treatment. Oh, great, I'm gonna just press, got it. All right, so we're gonna kick off the event um, with the presentation by Dr. David Thompson, followed by Q&A around stem cell therapy and eyelid transplantation. Shortly afterwards, we have Berlin Olson and Stephanie Hendy, who are two of our huddlers. who'll share their experiences with being um, participants in these research trials. But before I introduce our guests, um, I wanna provide some background um, about the session itself similar to all the other huddles, we'll be videotaping the session as you heard, um, the little prompt. And the reason we do that is because we post it on the T1D huddle website for people who couldn't attend. Um, So we kindly ask everyone to keep their microphone muted um, unless they are talking. Um, To make sure the session runs smoothly, we just have two simple ground rules. The first one is one person speaks at a time so we can be respectful of one another. Second ground rule is if, a dis- if the discussion associated with a specific question goes a little bit too long, um, I'll just give you a warning signal so you um, have 10 seconds to wrap up comments and then we'll go on to the next question. That's really never happened, but I'd like to always make sure I make that um, ground rule. Um, without further ado, I'm honored to introduce my colleague, Dr. David Thompson. Dr. Thompson is the medical director at BGH Diabetes Center and a clinical assistant professor in the Division of Endocrinology in UBC's Department of Medicine. His research interests include the development of novel gene and cell therapies for diabetes treatment, with a particular focus on islet transplants and stem cell therapies in diabetes. His current work as a principal investigator on the UBC B- um, BG- BCH Biosite clinical trial is focused on developing stem cell-based treatment, delivered through implantable devices that can secrete insulin in response to blood glucose levels. Um, with further research, these treatments have the potential to eliminate the dependence on injections and revolutionize type one diabetes treatment on an international stage. So, I'm gonna pass it on to
1: you.
2: Okay, thank you, Tricia, and thank you for all of your interest tonight. I think we really are at a very rapidly moving time in the treatment of diabetes after not much seemingly happening for decades. So I thought I would give an overview of just what the whole field of transplantation is and has been, because sometimes these terms are used interchangeably, just so you have an idea of what has been offered, what is being offered and what will be in the near future. So can I have the first slide slide?
0: Maggie, can you go ahead and okay. slide slides? And then Dr. Thompson, if you can just let Maggie know when you want her to forward each slide.
2: Sure, okay. Let's see how that works. I have them on my computer if necessary.
1: Okay. Oh yeah, just give me one second, got to pull it up. <laughs> it? If you don't, I can pull it up. There we go. Okay. Okay, so let's talk about options
2: R, and I have put a date on this because if I'm going to give this talk two months from now, probably a lot of information to be added. So if we could go to the next slide. Please. Okay, so there are several ways in you could get islet cells. Now I'm gonna use the term islet and beta cells somewhat interchangeably. I realize that they aren't exactly the same, uh, but when I use one or the other in general, I'm referring to the same thing. So decades ago, Minnesota, Uh, using whole pancreas transplants. A lot of the information in this came from Edmonton in the late 1990s about islet cells being isolated from a recently deceased donor. In other words, someone who was donating multiple organs, including their pancreas, but rather than whole pancreas being transplanted, islets were isolated in the pancreas. There was some work at one time to see if a living donor pancreas could be done the same way a living kidney is done. And that basically has been abandoned because you couldn't get enough islets from the living donor, donor and too often the number of islets left in the living donor resulted in them having diabetes. And so what's getting all of the attention right now is islets that are derived from stem cells. Now there are two potential stem cell sources. The ones that is being used currently is from a human embryonic stem cell line, however the theoretical uh, possibility exists. You can right now reverse engineer any one of us could take our skin cells and have it de-differentiated right a cell going from fertilization into tissues that is called differentiation and if you reverse that you can get a skin cell which is what a fibroblast is going back into a stem cell and you can then change its direction and program it to become any organ that you wish it to be and theoretically that approach will eventually remove all need and worry about immunosuppression. But currently we are talking about stem cells derived from an embryonic cell line. Next slide, please. So if we look at the original data from whole pancreas, the potential advantage from that is that when these successfully engraft, blood sugar values are completely normal. There's no hint of any abnormality. The problems with a whole pancreas, first of all, of course, there is very limited supply of organ donors in general, and in particular, donors of whole pancreas. And it is a very complex, difficult surgery that has a lot of complications associated with it, including mortality, unfortunately. And like many of the other things we're going to talk about, it does require immunosuppression. So currently, the only place where this has been shown to be successful is if a person also requires a kidney transplant. Now, of course, that is very late in the course of diabetes and is something that we're hoping to prevent with some of these other treatments, but currently at BGH, there are still either pancreas and kidney transplants at the same time or a whole pancreas being done after the kidney transplant. So that's all that I'll be talking about for the whole pancreas, because it's a very, very small niche. And as these other treatments get more successful, it will become less and less relevant. Next slide, please. So after decades of unsuccessful work, the group in Edmonton, published in the late 1990s, the first successful islet cell transplantation, where islets that are isolated from a donor pancreas are infused into the liver, and I'll show you a picture of that in a moment, and at least with that initial group, they could achieve insulin independence in many individuals. Now, Some of the drawbacks here, often you can't get enough islets from one donor to provide enough islets to get someone off insulin. Typically, as time goes by, the islets that are infused into the liver decrease their functioning. So off people will be requiring multiple infusions over years to remain independent from insulin. Even if a person isn't completely free of insulin, certainly the glucose fluctuations and the risk of hypoglycemia markedly drops with islet transplantation. Uh, Once again, there's a limited supply of donors and the islet transplantation does require immunosuppression and we'll be talking about that a bit more. Now, we've been doing those at BGH since 2003 and... One of the things we looked at is whether or not the complications of diabetes, the so-called microvascular complications affecting the eyes and the kidneys and their nerves could be helped by the allotransplantation. because given the risk of immunosuppression, you wonder if you could balance anything uh, against that. So let me just show some of the evidence that we found um, in our VGH group. Uh, Next slide, please. So this is how an islet transplant is done. You can see on the left that the pancreas is removed from the donor and in the lab the islets are isolated and they are basically infused through a tube into the portal vein of the liver and the liver was chosen because it has very good blood supply and was also the site that the pancreas normally first releases insulin into And so you can see what basically happens is the islet gets into the portal vein and then basically gets stuck there when the portal vein gets small enough and prevents any further passage. Okay, next slide. Now, if we look at the complications, so people who were in the study had varying degrees of diabetic retinopathy or eye damage. And you can see that traditionally eye damage is categorized into four different categories. Mild, moderate, severe, and P stands for proliferative diabetic retinopathy, which is the most advanced stage prior to loss of vision. Now, the farther you are along that pathway of complication, the more likely you are to progress, okay? It's a vicious circle that gets expanding here. Now, if you look at the progression to the next stage, so mild to moderate, moderate to severe, et cetera, you can see that what we did was a crossover study where initially people were treated with the best possible medical care until a suitable eye donor became available and you can see while people people were waiting on the medical side that 10 out of 82 eyes this is classified by the eye rather than by the person because not the, the two eyes don't always be the same and obviously each eye is precious in itself so 10 out of 82 subjects did have progression despite the best medical care and note that not a single person had any evidence of progression once they had the islet transplant. Next slide, please. If you look at kidneys, now GFR or glomerular filtration rate is a marker of renal function. The higher the GFR, the better. With age, you lose about one ml per minute per year of GFR. So a newborn baby will have about 120 ml per minute, That's the uh, X axis over there. And as we age and lose about one per year, you can see by about age 100, you'd be down to 20. And so that's sort of our finite lifespan. Anyway, the slope of the line shows how fast that this is dropping. And you can see that the dark blue line shows for the medically treated group, the rate of decline is four ML per minute per year. Now remember the baseline for a non-diabetic person is one ml per minute per year. So this is four times as fast and is why people with diabetes are at risk of kidney damage. If you look at the group, once they've had an islet transplant, this is cut by 50% and the rate is down to 1.5 ml per minute per year, which is not normal, but is much better than was during medical treatment. Next slide, please. If you look at nerves, now typically nerve damage does progress over time. What we showed here for the first time, what's on the x-axis there is the nerve conduction velocity, okay, expressed as a Z score. And basically, if the line goes down that means that the nerve conduction is getting worse over time. So here the purple line represented the medical group. And over the six years of follow-up, you can see that their nerve conduction became worse. Now note after the islet transplantation, the slope of the graphs the other way around. Nerves actually healed when a patient had an islet transplant. So not only did it prevent progression, it actually produced healing. And if you can get a Z score above negative one, and you can see at um, the six year mark there, it's gone from negative 1.5 up to just above one, essentially that means that close to normal nerve function had been restored, and this looked like it would continue over time. Okay, next slide. So there were, A number of benefits for islet transplantation and if there wasn't the issue of limited supply from donors as well as the issue of toxicity from immunosuppression, uh, there'd be a lot more work still going on in the islet transplantation. It is still being done but not as much as before. Okay so let's switch now to that area that is causing all of the attention recently. And I'm going to focus specifically on the Viocyte study, which we're involved with in Vancouver. There are a number of other studies either early on or being planned. This is the one that has the most data, and the same principles are going to apply. So, as I mentioned, the cells here come from a human embryonic cell line. Now, as I mentioned, the from a stem cell from right, the fertilized egg that differentiates into all the tissues in the body and you can break down into different steps the d- differentiation from a stem cell whether it becomes a brain cell or a heart cell or a beta cell and there are eight steps to get from a stem cell to a mature beta cell that produces insulin now a lot of the you know quack stem cell therapy you read about in the, uh, the papers on that where they inject stem cells into knees or into hearts or whatnot, you can't just put a stem cell into a tissue and expect it to know what it's supposed to become. So what Viacite and other labs do is they take this stem cell and they apply a number of factors to it in a specific order in order to start coaxing it along the way towards a beta cell and the current implants are done when cells are half the way there, stage four. So in fact, although the popular term is a stem cell transplant, this is not a stem cell transplant. It is a transplant of what's called a pancreatic endoderm cell or PEC, which is four steps removed from the original stem cell. So it is derived from stem cells but it is partially matured and the body does the rest. Once you put it into the body, these partially mature cells go all the way into making beta cells. Next slide, please. Now, the way this technology is currently done, you can see that the devices are implanted under the skin of the abdomen. So they are not put into the liver. And one of the concerns of go into the liver, of course, is if anything went wrong, you couldn't retrieve those cells from the liver if they produce tumors or whatnot. So these are implanted under the skin of the abdomen and they are put in a plastic encapsulation device. And that's what you see over on the less, left. The, these immature cells are put into the plastic container which is then inserted under the skin of the abdomen. And over a number of months, they will further differentiate into beta cells that can produce insulin. Next slide. Now you'll see here uh, an example of how close we are. On the left, the pre-implantation is what these cells look like when they are immature at stage four. You can see in the middle two columns, all of the green represents insulin producing beta cells. And a slide on uh, the column on the farthest right is an actual normal human pancreas. So you can see that this is really getting there these cells have gone from not producing any insulin into cells that are producing some insulin and are actually forming into histological structures that look very much like a human islet. Next slide. Now, not only do these stain for insulin, but you can in fact see that these cells secrete insulin. Now it's very important as you can imagine that You can't have a cell that just produces insulin whenever you want although or you'd be no better off in terms of hypoglycemia um, than taking a shot of insulin just stays there. So this is called glucose responsive insulin production. So if you give someone a meal then the glucose levels rise just as they would with a normal pancreas. I've just shown you a representative slide of some of the people who were participating in the biocyte study, and this is all published if any of you want to look at uh, the scientific paper. It's published in a journal called Cell Stem Cell, the December 2nd, 2021 issue. So not only do we have the anatomical staining for insulin production, but we also have the physiological glucose-responsive C-peptide production. Now all of the people enrolled in the initial study did make some C-peptide. It did vary quite a bit between one individual to another and nobody made enough to actually let themselves stop insulin. However you know when you're dealing with a new product like this uh, health count and the FDA make you go slowly and so you're only allowed to implant a certain number of cells initially until you prove the safety and effectiveness. And the what's called the primary endpoint or the measure of success for this first study was in fact showing for the first time in human history that a stem cell derived product could make C-peptide. This is quite a scientific milestone. The next obviously is to get enough C-peptide to allow people to stop insulin. Next slide please. Now one of the problems of every transplant that we've talked about so far is the need to use immunosuppression drugs. Right so the uh, these drugs have toxicity. Now this is the same concept as used for all types of organ transplants. However you know, if you're gonna die, if you don't get a heart transplant or a liver transplant, you sort of put up with the potential side effects from these drugs. When you're dealing with a condition such as diabetes that has another treatment, as all of you well know, even though it's not perfect, it nonetheless is a treatment, then it becomes much harder to balance the risks between the toxicity from immunosuppression and the toxicity of treating diabetes and the resulting complications. Now, basically you can break down the risks of immunosuppression into the annoying ones, which can be quite annoying to some individuals. Uh, yeah, I've got them listed there. And um, those can sometimes be, be managed with uh, dose adjustment. Otherwise people just sort of put up with them. The two big worrisome ones are the risk of infection, because the suppression of the immune system right now is all the immune system, including the immune part that fights off infections. So you're at increased risk of any type of infection, including some rare and very serious infections um, that have been fatal, not in the islet, or stem cell program, but in other organ, uh, you know, uh, liver and uh, kidney. For example, COVID has been very uh, disastrous uh, to people with uh, lung and kidney transplants because their immune system uh, is so suppressed. And the other thing is over time, typically after five to 10 years of immunosuppression, especially after 10 years, you'll see an increased risk of malignancy. So that wasn't an issue in a two-year viacite trial, but it would be something to consider if you were talking about this as a permanent treatment. Okay, next slide, please. Now, the big um, breakthrough that is happening just as we speak right now is the ability to engineer the cells in a way that they themselves avoid the immune system. Now, just a little bit of background here. All of us contain on each of our cells, something that declares who we are. Now for an analogy, let's just say fingerprints. Okay, our fingerprints declare that we are a unique individual. And if someone is looking at that, and in this case, the immune system, that will say who we are. Now our immune system is designed to attack and reject any tissue from another person that comes into our body. This is a so-called immune response. Sometimes when the immune system goes wrong, the body makes a mistake and attacks its own tissue and of course type 1 diabetes is a classic example where the immune system is attacking and destroying the beta cells. Now what's happened over the past decade is that the ability to genetically engineer cells and both chop out a specific gene and put other genes in, the general terminology for this is called CRISPR, and this allows you to modify a cell in ways that have never previously been done. So, what they do when they chop out cells that, uh, sorry, chop out uh, proteins that identify, a, you know, the tissue as belonging to a certain individual, you could think of that as people doing sandpaper on their fingerprints to try to uh, remove them. But another novel idea is to add molecules that actually cover up these antigens and prevent recognition. And think of that as somebody wearing gloves to cover up their fingerprints. And the classic example of this is, this is a mechanism by which tumors avoid um, detection by the host immune system. And the understanding of this has resulted in a whole bunch of immunotherapy breakthroughs. So basically, this is currently public information. Uh, The CRISPR technology that Viacide is using has put in uh, this PD-1 ligand, which is something produced by a tumor cell. And as a result, these PEC cells, P-E-C, pancreatic endoderm cells, that we have been implanting so far with the need for the whole body immunosuppression with drugs now will provide their own immunosuppression and have the ability to evade the immune system. And therefore these toxic drugs are not being used. And the immunosuppression is localized to the cells themselves. Now this of course is a huge breakthrough, not just for diabetes, but for all sorts of implants. Because you can do this principle if you're trying to do myocardial cell implants for heart failure, uh, spinal cord for when you're trying to regenerate a spinal cord that has been uh, severed, you know Parkinson's disease, putting in um, those neurons. So we're in a, a whole revolutionary uh, era of medical advance with these immune evasive cells and stem cell technology, and diabetes is actually of what you'll be reading over the next many, many years. Next slide, please. Okay, so where we're at right now is the people who volunteered for the first study allowed us to get where we are now. And although we were slowed down by COVID in a way, we're about a year ahead of where we thought we'd be because Health Canada looked at the data that we had generated with immunosuppression and have now given us the approval to proceed with the immunosuppression free trial. At the moment, we're in the middle of a safety study. Again, this is the first time in human history that a genetically engineered uh, stem cell derived line has been implanted. So we have to go slowly here. And first of all, very small devices containing just a few cells are being implanted and they're watched very closely to make sure that no toxicity, um, tumor growth or whatever has happened, okay? We're in the middle of that right now. We'll have those results, um, I hope by the end of June. Uh, I don't expect any problems because basically it's the same implanted um, plastic capsule. It's the same cell line. They just have been modified to avoid the immune system. Also of interest, these cells have been modified, so they're going to make three times the amount of insulin that uh, the current generation of cells have been made. Now, I was just talking with uh, one of the medical directors this afternoon at Biosite, and the plan is still to hope that this trial will be beginning. Now, it's a multi-centered trial, but Vancouver has enrolled more people than anywhere else in the World, and I anticipate, I plan to continue going that uh, sometime in the fall of this year. Now, um, the last few people that were done with immunosuppression, we were allowed to implant many more cells than we had earlier on, again, just because of the safety. And we have seen up to a 90% reduction in insulin requirements. Uh, If these current cells that I'm just talking about on this slide make three times as much insulin as the previous uh, ones last summer, that's how fast this field is advancing, you can see that it's quite reasonable to think that some people uh, will be able to stop insulin completely, just like the allotransplant people, um, with this next generation. And since in all of the Uh, animal trials done, this immune evasiveness works perfectly. Uh, We have every reason to think that's going to work as well in humans. Now, it's still going to be a study. And, you know, it's not going to by any means be be the last word in this. But, you know, the first computer wasn't the last computer. The first cell phone wasn't the last. But all of these have been modifications, the advances over this basic concept. I think that's where we are now. Starting the fall of 2022 and
1: going to 2023. So that's the end of the slides, and I'm happy to ask you any or answer any questions now. Okay. Great. Um, so if we can turn off the slides, um, we have
0: some questions that were submitted um, ahead of time, and I'm going to go ahead and ask you those, um, Dr. Thompson. Um, some of them you've answered, but I think um, we can repeat them since this is mm-hmm. very new to a lot of people. Um, Faith asks, with regard to biocyte trials, are anti-rejection meds needed?
2: What are yeah, the and effects? so Again, up until now, they were used and they had these side effects of the uncomfortable headache, nausea, uh, diarrhea, weakness, tremor, that sort of thing. Most people tolerate those reasonably well. The big worry is infection. And we had, uh, you know, you have to assume because the, the, you know, there's a small number of people done in in these diabetes stem cell trials. So you have to assume that they have the same risks as people with liver and kidney and heart transplants that have had many, many more. So there is a risk of these infections and in long-term recipients, not talking about the short-term and diabetes trial so far, there is a risk of malignancy. Now, again, if you have to, if it's a life or death situation, you just accept those risks, but that's something that has to be considered. Now, the progress has happened so quickly with these immune evasive cells. Sometimes move, science goes very slowly and sometimes it goes very, very quickly. And as we speak right now, Viacite is not planning to do any more trials with immunosuppression, but to move everybody into the immunosuppression-free trials.
1: Okay, great. Faith, did you want to follow up if you're here? Okay, great.
0: I see, Ed. Um, Ed, I'm going to go ahead and call on you since you probably are asking something in response to the presentation just delivered.
3: Yes, um, I was wondering, what the criteria are for um, choosing candidates for the trials that are currently underway? What, what, how do you choose the people for these, these
2: trials? Yeah, so we don't yet know um, exactly what criteria Health Canada will approve in terms of who is eligible. Um, for example, in the first trial with immunosuppression, people over 65 were excluded because of the toxicity that immunosuppression drugs have to someone over 65. Again, this is for a treatment not proven. Now, if you remove immunosuppression, then there's no risk from an age standpoint. Sometimes Health Canada Um, in the same FDA Health Canada, we we submit protocols, but the final approval comes from them. Sometimes they will take a very homogeneous group of people with a very restricted age or size or insulin requirements just to try and get as strong scientific data as they can with a small number of subjects. That's one extreme, okay? The other extreme is to say we want a whole spectrum of people with type one diabetes. And so we're not gonna put those kind of uh, restrictions on. I simply don't know right now who, um, what the final protocol is going to be. Uh, anytime you in, are in a study, there are some things you, you are gonna have to do. People have to be in fairly good control of their diabetes because there's evidence that high sugars are damaging to these cells once they get implanted while they're immature. And so basically people have to prove that they will look after their diabetes um, reasonably well. And there is a lot of data that needs to be collected, including you have to wear a Dexcom sensor all the time, and you have to keep food records and keep in touch with the uh, team. And not everybody wants to put in all of that effort because it is quite a bit, especially in the first few months. But beyond that, because I don't have the final protocol, I can't just put up a slide saying these are the criteria. I'm pretty sure children will not be allowed and you get many questions about when can kids get in. Probably you're going to have to prove that this treatment Because remember I said we've got up to a 90% reduction in insulin, but we haven't got 100% yet. Okay, And so we're probably going to have to prove that it actually works in adults before we can uh, offer this to children. But I think that's going to come pretty fast.
1: Thank you.
0: Great question. I see your hand up as well. Yeah, thank you. Um, thank you for the great talk. I was just wondering um, if there's
4: any concerns of malignancy with the PEC cells, since they are immune evasive.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that um, Health Canada and everybody else is watching very closely. So what I can tell you is as follows. Um, one of the I mean, the the first trial, of course, is to put these in all the rodent models and see if there's any uh, tumor growth and there hasn't been any. Um, These are implanted in a plastic capsule that has got very, very small pores. And these are ultrasounded very frequently during the trial to look for any evidence that any cells have grown outside the capsule. And this is, you know, the, the first trial has been going on for four years now, and none of the um, ultrasounds has shown any growth of cells outside of the capsule. That's as far as I can go right now to say that, you know, there's no evidence so far. Now, you know, you get the old thing, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence, right? But it's a matter of how far do you want to test this before you actually put it into practice. And so the decision right now is to allow a small study, but that is certainly going to be one of the criteria. It's going to be easier in a situation like the Viacite study, where these are implanted in a very uh, accessible part of the body remove. It's going to be harder for, you know, studies where you're putting this in or the liver, the heart or uh, but by then I think the answers uh, will be a bit clearer, but, you know, there can be a whole bunch of different immune modifications. in, And so this is going to be an ongoing question with all of these genetically engineered uh, engineered cells.
0: Thank you. Great. Abed, good to see you. I mean,
3: not to see, I can't see you. <laughs> Good to see you, Dr. Tang, or speak to you, at least. Go
0: ahead.
3: Good. I had a question. Um, so, Is there any data on, um, you know, participant experience with the trial? Like, is there anything about, you know, if they, you know, I mean, there's always obviously the data that shows that, okay, there is improvement in their, in their insulin response and, 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 and you know, patient health and all that, but is there anything about, you know, showing that, you um, you know, as they found it, have they found it hard to cope with that? Has it made their lives easier? You know, is there any pain or anything with the, you know, with the actual process or anything along those lines?
2: Yeah. So those are all listed in quite some detail in the published papers. Okay. And again, these are in the December 2nd issue of the journal cell stem cell that you can access through the library. Basically, the complications are just what would be expected from the immunosuppressive drugs. Essentially, all the complications are related to the surgery itself. There are incisions and people do complain of some pain and the list of uh, complications is written down. Not, not different than what one would expect for any immunosuppressive drugs. Now, um, You know, Stephanie or people may want to talk about this in in more detail, but this is one of the issues that people have to decide, Um, you know, especially if their diabetes is going relatively smoothly. And I I emphasize relatively, okay. I mean, it's a 24 hour day job, no matter what, but um, they may not want to jump into a trial when one cannot guarantee being off insulin. Okay. Especially with immunosuppression. Now going ahead to the next study, the the surgical issues, I mean, these are relatively small incisions. They are basically a flap of the skin under the abdomen. This does not go inside the abdomen itself. So it's considered relatively minor surgery. So there can be some pain at the incision site. You know, some people have bleeding. We have not had any infections. There are scars, uh, you know, people can make their own judgment about whether these are big or not, that's much, very much, in, and medically, these would not be considered to be large scars. But again, everybody, we can show pictures of what they are and everybody has to make their own decision. That's why I never try to talk anybody into a study. There are many, many more people who are interested in this. Uh, everybody knows in their particular life, whether they want to jump in at this stage or wait until it's a bit farther along. The only trick with waiting is you never know exactly how long You know, there's a chance to do it now. You never know when this, once it gets past the trial stage, how long it's going to get to be approved for general use and exactly how widespread that's going to be. But Va- Vancouver will be at the center of that.
0: We actually have someone who located in the Viacite trial, the first one, Stephanie Hendy. So- this is a great opportunity for you to jump in and answer Abid's question.
4: Sure, okay, so um, can you just repeat the question?
3: Yeah, I was just kind of curious on, on uh, what your experience was with the, you know, the surgery and, and the kind of after you know, the general day-to-day and, and dealing with everything afterwards, like did you find that you found your life improved or did you find there was extra you know, pain and you know, all that dealing with that, there's another side of things or did you find it generally was, was better?
4: Um, well, I'm I'm already quite meticulous in my um, diary keeping in terms of uh, when I eat, when I exercise, how much I've modified my insulin dosages by. So I personally didn't find the reporting all that obtrusive because it was the same as what I was already doing. Um, I didn't like using the Gluco app just because it was different from what i already use i use my fitness pal and uh strava garmin connect to track my food and exercise uh, it wasn't hard to use i just didn't really like it and then it stopped working about six months before the trial was over and couldn't be fixed so that was frustrating um but it didn't really it didn't interfere with my life i certainly felt that they were there. Even now, I I got them taken out of me May last year. I still have quite a bit of scar tissue of where the implants were. Um, They weren't sore. Occasionally, they felt almost like they were the edges of them because they're kind of like put in in these four little diagonal bits near your Uh, belly button, two inches from your belly button, and they kind of fan out toward your um, obliques. And so it's almost like I could feel the edge of them sometimes, occasionally rubbing my obliques, uh, but that was very minor, very minute. Um, I only noticed them really, I do biathlon. So when I'm on my abdomen on a hard surface, I certainly noticed them, but for the most part, it was mostly inobtrusive so and there wasn't any pain or anything from from the implants themselves they're they're kind of like as dr thompson said they're they're plastic and they're thin membranes kind of like um like this the thickness of a credit card but pliable right like a mesh so it wasn't really uh yeah it wasn't super intrusive
3: okay perfect thanks
0: Um, We have a question in the chat box from Alan. To participate in the trial, will it be limited to the Vancouver area or all over BC?
2: We have people from all over BC enrolled in the trial. Um, Again, you have to be willing to travel to Vancouver according to the schedule that is demanded by the trial. Uh, you know, that's the only way you can run a scientific study is to have follow-ups at specific times and whatnot. But as long as the person is able to do that, and all of these you know, are published ahead of time, it's not all of a sudden you have to come next week. You'll see after the implant, then you've got follow-ups at such and such a time. But everyone in BC is eligible.
0: Okay. Along those lines, Nadia, um, Barr, and Melissa all ask the same question. How, oh, actually, Alan, did you want to follow up on that? I'm
5: sorry. Yeah, just, just one, maybe um, second part to that question. Um, once you participate in the trial, does that exclude you from participating in future versions of the trial?
2: What What we have said on, on, with with the company and with ethics and whatnot is okay. This this will not be probably the final um, iteration of of therapy. Okay, and so. Um, to use an old term, you'll be grandfathered in, okay? Once you have uh, completed whatever trial, if if you no longer want to keep the packages that you currently have, then you'll be grandfathered in when basically the definitive treatment is is available as a reward basically for uh, participating earlier on. Perfect,
5: thank you.
0: Okay, great. And along those lines, Nadia Barr and Melissa all ask, how can I get involved in future clinical trials?
2: Yeah, um, we, um, I would stay tuned. Um, I mean, it's, it's very tricky about how, how you can advertise um, things and whatnot with ethics, but I would um, keep a watch on the VIA site. Now, when you say future trials, I assume you're talking about the VIA trial. I would keep a watch on the uh, VIA site, um, website that will be announcing things and the uh, Vancouver, uh, Vancouver General Hospital website. And Tricia, you of course will know uh, exactly what's going on as a member of the division. And I, you know, as soon as I uh, hear things, um, I'll let everybody in the division know. And so, being part of your huddle is probably a, a very, very way to know. And then, you know, once we're at the stage of um, uh, opening up a, um, a potential trial, um, we talk about the general details and then uh, give you a contact person and take it from there.
0: Okay, hey, Nadia, I know- But you're... I
2: mean, there's not going to be an ad in the Vancouver Sun or whatnot.
0: Okay. Nadia, I know you're on screen. So did you want to follow up or Bar or Melissa um, if you're on screen?
6: I just wanted to say thank you. Uh, I was a patient of Peter Seniors and I missed that opportunity. So the idea of being a part of something else and just again, it's about finding the information. So thank you. Mm-hmm.
5: Okay. Bar,
2: yeah, stay you're in welcome. touch with Trisha, and you'll get it now.
0: Hi, and it's uh, Melissa here. And I also want to thank you for this information. Um, I lived in Edmonton many, many years ago and was uh, basically was kind of um, told by my endocrinologist at the time to not do the um, the the actual research that was going on in Edmonton. So I've always absolutely regretted doing that. And um, I'm so excited with this research that's moving forward. So I would absolutely love to be a part if it's at all possible.
2: Well, it certainly will be at some stage. um, And everybody has to decide just when they want to take part. I mean, typically, you know, if you get good results um, from the first few people, what you can do is you can apply to you know, Health Canada, the FDA for something to call the Breakthrough Technology Award. And that says that a treatment is so revolutionary and good that you really can't delay it the way a standard drug trial goes, but you need to show, you know, results in 10, 20 people quite consistently. And, and that's why, you know, I just can't tell you exactly what what the number is going to be, but this is happening, okay? Uh, there's no question this is going to work. Now, exactly which company is going to have the best cell type in five years from now, I don't know, but somebody will. And um, this right now, uh, for my looking at things, site is ahead of the others, and it's the best chance, and that's what we're doing right now. But there will be something. And, of course, you know, to a certain extent, uh, if you look at the technology right now, if you need a different package of cells, that's somewhat like Potentially replacing a pacemaker, right? You take out the the package that you have right now, put in um, a more advanced package. I um, see this multiple uh, options going forward.
1: Very cool, great.
0: Bar, I didn't see your name, so I'm assuming you're not here. Um, all right. The next question from Anonymous, are you growing pancreatic tissue from stem cells with the hopes for pancreas transplants in the future?
2: Um, I mean, the the idea here would not be to try to grow an entire pancreas, right? A a pancreas is only about 1% beta cell or islets and 99% of the pancreas is involved in digesting food. And that's why isolating the, uh, the islets is tricky in the islet transplant process. So I look at this more as we are trying to grow human islets because in that slide that I showed you, the body somehow has the magic to uh, differentiate these very immature cells into what looks like a fully functional human islet. It also makes glucagon and whatnot. And the amazing thing is it does this under the skin of the abdomen, which is not a place where the pancreas is supposed to be. So somehow the body has that message. So I would look at more that we are growing um, islet cells. And and eventually, I mean, it's an unlimited supply, right? Uh, Growing uh, these things is, is trivial from a manufacturing standpoint, same way like making insulin is. And, you know, you can easily see the future that anybody with diabetes, eventually there's going to be type two as well, right? Because it's type one right now, because the the first issue is getting C-peptide production, which you can't measure in type twos. Uh, but I I see this going uh, as a treatment for all types of diabetes, but probably right now with the growing of islets as opposed to a whole pancreas.
0: Okay. miss um, if you're there, did you want to follow up? Okay, so there are several questions that are all on um, the same, the, getting uh-huh. at the same thing. And basically it's, we know that these results are favorable, um, but Ian says, I've been dealing with type 1 for 36 years now and heard about a cure uh-huh. since the first day I set foot in children's hospital with diabetes. I lost hope this was ever going to happen. Um, if things continue to go in the favorable direction, when do you think this is going to be considered a cure?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, even the word cure, right, can can mean different things to different people. Like for example, in the islet transplant program, you know, somebody uh, may go from an insulin pump down to one shot of 10 units of a basal insulin per day, or take just a shot with a big meal and nothing else. I mean, you know, technically that isn't insulin independence, but to that person, they were just as good as cured compared to what they had. On the other hand, are we going to get to the stage where a can eat whenever they want and do whatever kind of exercise they want and never worry that their sugar is going to go out um, of line one bit? That, that's the whole range there. I think, so this is just my opinion right now, okay? I think by the end of... 2023 and certainly uh, probably see the, these cells, um, you typically, these cells have to grow at least three months in the body before you see any C-peptide, to, just because they actually are you know, at a fetal stage of development. So let, let's say we started in October of this year, which is the whole, you're probably not gonna see many results before early in 2023, just because of the length of time it takes these cells to mature. But I think it is highly likely that a significant number of people will be off insulin in 2023 using the study protocol um, that I've outlined right now. And again, I'm in touch with these guys every week in terms of just uh, what what is going on. It's, It's interesting, a local flavor. Uh, Tim Kiefer, who was a scientist um, at UBC, and did a lot of the basic biology work in developing uh, the, uh, the stem cell derived um, approach, although the current cell line is not one that he developed, he last fall was so excited by this technology that he has gone down, he's taken a leave of absence from UBC, and is now the chief scientific officer for Viacite. Now, that's one of the best brains in the world. And he figures he can make these cells make 10 times the amount of insulin uh, that they currently are making. And he thinks by the end of the year, uh, he'll have the cells working like that just by altering the development. So that's how fast things are, working, are, are moving right now. Okay, So that's my best estimate as somebody in the field uh, as to when things will at least progress to the being able to stop insulin and not make immunosuppressive drugs. Now, not everybody will call that a cure, but it's obviously very well on the way.
1: Okay. Ian and Lana, did you have any follow up to that? Okay, nope. All right. So we've got
0: four people who have asked questions that you have covered, but I just want to give them a chance to maybe um, ask if, you know, something and follow up. But Cheryl, are you here? Cheryl Straza? You said you wanted to ask Dr. Thompson yourself since you're his patient. Okay, Cheryl, Tammy, um, I saw you have a question um
1: and I think it's been answered, but did you want to follow up with any question, Tammy? Sorry. I'm actually I'm so happy with all the information. My
4: head is just spinning from the possibility. Thank you so much for everything.
1: Okay. I'm I'm good. Yeah.
0: Great, Julie, Julie Larson, did you have any follow-up?
1: My question was simply about the the age limit or the, you know, how old
4: can a person be and still be part of this um, new opportunity?
2: Yeah, as I mentioned, I don't know what Health Canada is going to decide on that. I mean, I'm certainly going to suggest no age restriction. It's possible, you know, separate what they're going to do in the first phase two study of, you know, maybe 40 people worldwide uh, where they may restrict it. I'm not saying I agree with that, but they they may in the just in the interests of um, trying to get a homogeneous group and. Um, but there is, once you get into the study beyond that, I can't see any reason whatsoever to put an age restriction. And that includes on the kids on the other end of the spectrum too. Right. thank you. Again, you don't necessarily want to be in the very first study because the chances are, as I've told you how quickly these cells are improving just over the past 12 months, right? It may be that another 12 months will be that much farther. Everybody's got to make the decision themselves, right? When do I wanna jump in? When is this far enough?
0: Great, um, Patrick, if you're here, did you wanna ask a question? I had you down, but I think we answered it. David. Great, so there's two more questions in the chat box. Dr. Thompson, if you're willing okay. to answer yep. these. Um, yep. This one's by Faith. How long do the inserts last?
2: I mean, how long do the cells live?
0: Uh, Faith, did you-
2: Presumably.
1: Expound on that question, the, the encapsulation? Okay, I'll go to Not, the next question. Yeah, you know, I mean, what,
2: what most people mean by that is, is, are these cells wear out, right? Well, basically this is a fetal cell line So theoretically, they have a whole human lifespan in them. And certainly the cells last longer than the natural lifespan of the experimental animals when they've been put in. Uh, Beyond that, I don't know, right? It may be that the conditions they're in won't give it uh, that long of survival. But again, theoretically, you can replace these the same way you can replace a pacemaker.
0: Okay, Um, last question for you. Dr. Thompson, and then we're going to move into the patient perspective component. Um, is by Lori, Lori Rosen. Is anybody using autologous otol- stem cells? If not, why?
2: Um, there are okay. So, um, okay. So you're not talking about hologues ileus, but rather okay. Um, so um, the uh. The the problem is that although theoretically you can take our own stem cells and convert them into our own um any kind of cell, um the you know that requires basically a huge amount of investment for any particular person because you got to do it for the same thing for everybody. And to the best of my knowledge, we don't have that capacity right now to basically draw some blood uh, from your arm, isolate your stem cell, and differentiate it into whatever you want. I think that's the future for a whole bunch of tissues. But right now, as far as where, that isn't happening.
0: Okay, great. Oh, um, I have a question. Someone just raised their hand.
2: That's yes. me. It's, yes. It says Melanie, but it's Patrick. And thank you. I had sent in a question earlier. I don't have it right in front of me. What was the question, please, Tricia?
0: Yes, I have the question. When will this, like, when will this technology be available, made available for the public?
2: Right. I guess you've partially answered that already, Doctor. Yeah, I mean, if you I mean, tra- traditionally, right, you, what you have to do, is you have to do a phase one study of safety, phase two efficacy, which is what we're going to be doing in the fall. Then most of the time, if you think of this like a drug, you have to then do a phase three study where you formally compare it with the best available current treatment in a randomized manner. If a study is so obviously better than anything that exists, that's when you go for that breakthrough technology um, approach and uh, sometimes can bypass the need. Okay. okay. I'm hoping, you know, best case less than five years.
1: Thank you. Okay.
0: All right, great. So I'm gonna move on to the patient perspective component um, here um, from the people who've actually undergone islet transplants and been in the Viacite trial. Um, Dr. Thompson, if you can stay, that'd be great. If you, you need to go, totally understand.
2: I am gonna to have to, to go off now okay. if I can, so.
0: Thank you so much we say for educating saying, all of us. I think it was just really exciting. I mean, I should, exciting is the best word I can say is like, I can't she, believe it in a couple of years things are going to change. So yep,
2: much. you can. So should we say same time next year? Yeah. Definitely. And um, next year. if there's, uh, if, but there may be something before that, I'll let you know. If there are any questions that come out from this next part of the discussion, let me know. And I'll try to email something back.
0: Definitely. All right. Thanks, okay. Thanks,
1: guys. Thanks. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Good night. Thank so you.
0: got. We've got two very special people We've been in the trials. Um, again, I know we said that we were going to stop at seven, but um, I think everyone is interested enough to listen. So I'm going to introduce our two guests, um, Berlin Olson. Berlin was diagnosed with type one in 1983 at the age of 28 in the early 2000s. He looked into the Edmonton protocol. And so this is kind of like the predecessor of stem cell therapy, the islet cell transplantation but didn't think he was eligible and got scared off by fear of side effects of the anti-rejection drugs. Um, after having um, to take injections a day, he switched to uh, using an insulin pump for about four years, but had a number of incidents. Um, in, in September, 2014, a car accident caused by a low blood sugar put Berlin on the path to islet cell transplants. In the spring of 2015, he had two islet cell transplants and was completely off insulin injections per year. And in January, 2017, he, has, he had his third transplant. Throughout this journey, Merlin has continued to flourish his career in law and politics. He's a bit of a celebrity. After practicing in Camrose for about 30 years, he ventured into politics in 2008, served as MLA for Wotaskawin Camrose until 2015. In 2011 and 2012, he acted as the Minister of Justice and Attorney General and was later appointed as the Minister of Agriculture and Rural Development. In eventful years in politics, Berlin returned to law. He founded Olson Law in 2015, which the aim of focusing his practice on helping families transition from their farms and small, small businesses to the next generation. He is also a board member of numerous committees and organizations, including Diabetes Canada. Um, and he's looking forward to sharing his experience of the transplant process with us. Um, I'm going to also with Stephanie and so have both introductions done at the same time. You've already heard from Stephanie. Stephanie Hendy has been living with type one since the age of five. She's experienced a long history of treatment from being on MDI of NPH and regular insulin to being on a pump and a CGM. Growing up, she was told about how there would be a cure, like so many people have heard this for diabetes in her lifetime, which first happened with the Edmonton protocol study. She wrote to Bobby Clark when she was a teenager because he was the first person she heard about with type one. Um, Stephanie experienced hypoglycemic seizures in her childhood, the worst and last event um, being when she was 18. This wake-up call forced her um, into an obsession. She endeavored to live life possible within her means and wanted to help others um, like her do the same. So Stephanie holds a bachelor of science degree in kinesiology from SFU and has been working in the field of exercise prescription and lifestyle promotion for over 12 years. She first learned about the Biasite trial in 2018 and was in the trial from May 2019 to May 2021. She jumped at the chance to be part of the diabetes treatment history. Stephanie, um, there's only 15 of you, so that you did really make history. Stephanie was also heavily involved in provincial government advocacy and was instrumental in helping remove the age... Restrictions on government-funded insulin pumps in 2018, and in getting CGMs covered by PharmaCare in 2020. So, um, thank you for coming here and sharing your experiences. I thought we would start with Berlin, just telling us about your experiences with your treat, um, three islet transplants, and then Stephanie, I'm um, sharing your experience. And then, you know, as you all in the audience have questions, please feel free to um, type them in the chat box, and then I will, you know, call on you, and you can you can ask your questions. So, um, Berlin, do you want
5: to start? There, can you hear me? Well, hello everybody. Thanks for the invitation. This has been very interesting uh, evening. And um, first thing I need to know is how much time you are gonna give me because I'm notorious for talking too much. So will you give me a... Or something
1: when to share
0: your story for about um, no more than five minutes and then sh- and then okay. can, and then we'll just invite all these questions. Um, again, okay. um, we don't have to stop at 7:30. We can go as long as people, I mean, as long as you guys want. Of course, you can leave. I'm not going to force you to be in the room, but um, as long as people would like. So, Berlin, you know, oh. I'll give you the wave when it's um, okay up to
5: five. Thank you. So um, yeah, it's a pleasure to be involved in this. I, uh, I can already see that um, um, like I'm, I'm the old news between Stephanie and I, and uh, I, I've experienced this before because uh, I had my transplants back in uh, 2015, almost exactly uh, seven years ago now, I guess. Um, and I um, Occasionally, I would get asked by Dr. Shapiro, the the transplant doctor, one of the transplant doctors at the U of A to come and tell my story at some sort of an event. And it was not very long before I realized as he was describing new new procedures, new possibilities that I already at that point was old news and that's been reinforced for me again today. Uh, but uh, I do have to say, too, that I, unlike Stephanie, I'm not, um, not one of those brave people who uh, stuck my hand up uh, early on in the process in, in a trial. Uh, I heard about the trials uh, going on at the U of A, the Edmonton Protocol, fairly early on, but uh, I think I just read a story in the paper or something, and I at some point decided I would go through the pre-screening, but... Uh, I had the feeling that I probably wasn't brittle enough I I probably wouldn't be a candidate anyway and then when I read about the potential side effects I kind of decided you know I can manage uh, with uh, taking my insulin and just behaving myself Uh, and that went on for a condition did kind of progressively get worse I started out I think when I was first diagnosed taking uh, a few units of NPH a day. And then as probably many of you on this call, uh, your condition evolved over time. And just when you think you've got it figured out, your body changes and now your needs are different. And uh, when I first started taking Toronto insulin, I remember I probably, my head was spinning for about a year or two. Um, I I just didn't react very well to that uh, treatment. uh, eventually, I ended up. Uh, I was taking five needles a day. I was very brittle. Uh, I ended up going on the insulin pump. By the time I was on the insulin pump, I was also a minister of agriculture, which meant I was kind of living out of a suitcase, traveling the world. I was everywhere from Kazakhstan to Capitol Hill in Washington to uh, Japan, China, uh, all over Canada, and so it didn't really lend itself uh, to. Um, healthy living put it that way and a disciplined um, schedule Uh, and uh, I was uh, having trouble every once in a while we have a house in Newfoundland and the one summer I ended up in intensive care in uh, Gander Newfoundland for four days because my pump quit working and just having lots of trouble and eventually in fall of 2014 I uh, uh, lost control of my car I was unconscious I'm sure uh uh, with uh, low blood sugar and, uh, just about killed myself. And, uh, that my pump nurse at the U of A, uh, is the one who said to me, are you sure you should be on the pump? Maybe you should look into the transplant. And so that's what put me on the path to the transplant because I was kind of living life on the edge a little bit with, uh, you know, not handling my diabetes very well. So, uh, I had, uh, got the call in the middle of the night in, uh, March of 2015 and uh, my uh, condo uh, right beside the legislature was a four-minute LRT ride uh, from the U of A hospital. So I got there quickly and um, uh, I had two transplants a couple of weeks apart and my wife, I remember at the time saying, if you could just be off insulin for a week, it would be a miracle. Uh, And as it turned out, after the second transplant, because of body mass and uh, the amount of islet cells available and so on, I had to have two transplants. Uh, shortly after the second one, I was completely off insulin and, and completely off for a full year. Uh, and then started slipping a little bit. My sugars started climbing a little bit. So uh, in January of 2017, I had a third transplant uh, and uh, that uh, again, really reduced my insulin needs. Uh, I'm at the point now where uh, Dr. Senior is my endocrinologist, and um, I meet with him every six. and uh, he's now asking me, as as is Dr. Shapiro, so would you like to have a fourth transplant? Um, I've been kind of resisting it because I feel like uh, taking a few uh, extra units of insulin is not that uh, invasive, Um, for sure. Okay, I'll just say that I got. I'm getting the sign here, but I'll just say that the anti-rejection drugs and the side effects are probably for sure the biggest negative, but outweighed by all the positives.
0: Thanks, Berlin. Um, Stephanie, what about you? Um, You want to share your experience?
1: Yeah, so, I mean,
0: um,
4: mine's quite different um, in that I didn't really have any side effects from any of the um, immune suppressing drugs. So, I mean, certainly that was a concern, but uh, well, I shouldn't say that. I didn't have any of the side effects that Dr. Thompson uh, reported. Um, I am still um, like of childbearing age and I noticed that my, my menstrual cramps got quite a bit worse. Um, they don't seem to believe me that they were related, but I, uh, you know, I spoke with the study coordinator. I said, well, since, since getting the implants removed, uh, last May, I haven't had any, uh, cramping. So, you know, I thought that was kind of interesting that they just, uh, they, I didn't feel that they really, um, understood much about. Complications in different genders, um, especially because uh, I, you know, I'm not allowed to talk about too much of my results. But uh, I would say that uh, my graph was not included <laughs> in that report because I know which number I was, and um, I even asked them. I said, you know, it was my outcome uh, based on the fact that I have a lot of adipose tissue in my abdomen, you know, cause there's no good blood, bu- There's no good blood supply to fat. There's good blood supply to muscles and to bone. And so if it's being implanted subcutaneously, is that actually giving it a good chance to get vascularized? So what happens is they put in four active units of, um, the uh plastic membrane with the stem cells and then they put in these uh six what they called sentinel units which are essentially like blanks they're tiny ones in the size of your uh like size of your pinky ear they put two of them in your abdomen they put four of them in my forearm and then they took them at regular intervals to see how well your body vascularized the implants in other words they could tell certain markers, certain time courses of where they were expecting your body to attach itself to the, to the image. So the vascularization that I had after month one and after month three, uh, they couldn't do this six month one because that was during COVID. So all the surgeries were getting canceled. So, um, that one didn't come out until all of
1: the active ones came out. So anyway, uh, they told me then that, uh, mine were not vascularized as. Um, going into the trial, uh, and during the
4: trial. So, um, yeah, there were still quite a few questions, but I had to, the reason why I was able to be in the trials, cause I, I, uh, was sterilized back in 2016. So if you're a female and you're wanting to go into the study, you have to sign off and say that you have two forms of birth control and that you're never going to get pregnant ever again. Because if as Dr. Thompson had told me, if you, uh, are accepting, um, stem cells, that it could cause a germline mutation. If you were to get pregnant, you would have to terminate the pregnancy. So that was never for me. So that's why they were allowing me to come in. So somebody earlier asked about age, uh, the older you are, I think actually the more likely that they're going to take you in because you don't have as much hormonal fluctuations and glucose variability in your, in your day-to-day life. So, um, I Again, I loved being in the trial, but that's because I'm, I'm already a, a human physiologist. So it was, it was super cool to me to be a, a sentient lab rat. Um, but a lot of people might not enjoy that or they may have had side effects to the medication. Um, but I was never dizzy or nauseous. I mean, I, uh, I'm a trail runner in the summer and a, and a biathlete cross-country skier in the winter. So it didn't interfere with my life in that sense. But now I've since moved to the Okanagan and I don't know if I would want to go to Vancouver at regular intervals of like every one month. And, you know, there's a few, most of the visits are like really rapid in the first month and then they sort of uh, petered off and then it was like once every three months, once every six months, once every 12 months, 18 months, 24 months. Um, so yeah, there was a lot of different, uh, a lot of different things to keep up with, you know, giving blood. It wasn't hard. The visits weren't challenging. Um, an echocardiogram that said that I was Brady cause my resting heart rate was 58 beats per minute, <laughs> you know, fun stuff like that, even though it's not at all clinically significant, it was just, uh, funny to me that, uh, I set off their machine. So um, anyway, uh, yeah, it was a, I thought it was a cool experience and I thought, it, you know, I wanted to, again, cause I knew that I wasn't going to have, I made the choice not to have children as someone with diabetes. So I thought this would be a cool way to have a, a permanent impact on the world and on research and give, um, people like Dr. Thompson, some ideas of what to steer and how to make it, um, more effective for the next generation.
0: Great. Um, questions, feel free to either put the hand up, raise your hand icon, or
1: just um, enter something in the chat box just saying you want to ask something. anything Anything?
5: Dr. Tang, um, Faith had asked a question earlier on in the chat there, just of Stephanie, and and I'm kind of interested in in that as well. And that is um, why why did you have your implant removed? If you're you're open to answering it,
4: the trial was two years.
5: Oh, okay. So you had to have it removed at that point. Okay. That's right. Would you have kept it if you could? No. No.
4: Not because I didn't, not because I
1: didn't want him in me, but just it wasn't uh, effective for me. Yeah. Conversely
4: they wouldn't have kicked they, they, they wouldn't kick anybody out like because I asked them that too. If it was if it was successful and I was 100% percent uh, insulin free, uh, you know, uh, Dr. Thompson said, uh, you have to provide us consent, to go into your body because they knock you out. They put you under general anesthetic to put in the implants and take the implants out. So if, if it's working for you and you're not taking any injections, you can then withdraw consent and say, I no longer consent to you going inside my body to take these implants out of me. There's nothing they could really do about that. However, um, because I was on immune suppressing drugs, They could say, well, we're not going to subsidize your immune suppressing drugs any longer because you're exceeding the the study uh, confines, right? But with the new upcoming uh, one, uh, because there won't be any immune suppressing drugs required, as Dr. Thompson said, with gene editing through CRISPR, then uh, potentially
1: you could just stay in it forever,
0: So, Stephanie, I want to get, um, take the opportunity to introduce you to Alan, because Alan lives in Vernon, and you live in Vernon, and I promised I would introduce you to someone <laughs> who has Typhoon who lives in Vernon. He's just one of probably three or four folks who are in the huddle who live in Vernon. Okay, um, there is a question in the chat box. Are you on the pump now? Now, that's for, I guess, both Stephanie and Berlin. What are you taking now or using now?
5: Uh, I'm I'm not on the pump I uh, haven't been on the pump since before my transplant. I'm right now I'm taking 20 units of sheba and uh, three units of um, um, Humalog every morning. that's it. And I was taking five shots a day um, way way more insulin and and then I was on the pump uh, so yeah this is a huge reduction still even though I'm taking some. Okay
0: Stephanie?
4: Um, I'm pumping and I just started to build my own uh, loop system through Android EPS. Uh, so that's my current treatment plan.
1: Okay, Luther. Nadia? Uh, yeah, I guess I just had the, a question, I guess it
6: kind of stemmed from what you were saying before, Stephanie. Did they, part of the trials, did they limit your use of insulin? One, uh, if it was, if it like if you felt like you didn't have
1: good enough control, was that a, a barrier? I guess. I don't know if anyone can hear me there. <laughs> I can hear you. Okay, cool. Thanks. <laughs> Sorry, I got bumped off Wi-Fi. Oh, there she is. Okay. <laughs> Sorry about that.
0: Okay, so um Nadia, did you already ask your question? I was gonna call on you.
6: Uh yeah, I did. Um, but it doesn't look like Stephanie's here anymore. But I was just, or no, maybe you are. Yeah, I was just if you uh had to use insulin uh, during, you know, if you felt like you didn't have enough control say in that first month or if they limited that and if you opted for uh, MDI or pump or what have you. Sorry, can you repeat the question? My Zoom froze and then
4: kicked me out and rebooted.
6: Uh, it was just if you used insulin, if you didn't feel like you had enough control uh, and if the if the clinical trial kind of limited you in any way for using synthetic insulin. Um, I'm still not understanding the question. So I was
4: using, I was on a pump prior to the trial. I was on a pump during the trial and I'm still on a pump. So it it didn't have any effect.
6: Okay, thanks. I guess that was,
4: yeah, (laughs) thanks. Yeah. uh, uh, Funnily enough, I was actually on the least amount of insulin when I first was recovering from the surgery. And Dr. Thompson said it was way too early for me to be having any effect, but that quickly wore off. So I think what had happened is they had to double my insulin prior to knocking me out because I was in the hospital for four days on anti-rejection drugs. They have to give you this one called ATG, which is really intense. And then they also have to give you prednisone and prednisone makes your blood sugars skyrocket. So I think the reason why I was a little low when I first got out of the, um, surgery was because we had jacked up my insulin so much to try to get my blood sugars down, but it wasn't my regular, um, rate. So once I got my, my numbers
1: back, it was still, uh, the same. Okay, Sheila, you have a question in the um, chat box. Did you want to go ahead and ask in person? Uh, Marina raised her hand. Marina's. Here. Hello, everyone. Uh, I hope I will not
0: get frozen and kicked out of the Zoom. Uh, Stephanie, I don't have a question, but I have to, to thank you, Stephanie, for acknowledging the difference between women and men and in research that we are so different with that hormonal monthly thing that we have like it's not monthly it's even like by weeks it changed the requirements of insulin and thank you for underlying that in probably in your feedback for the research because it's easier when you are a man (laughs) to have a straight line for the for the
1: glucose and for women it's much much harder thank you so much it actually makes me wonder how
0: many women were in the trial because you said in order to be in the trial, you had to sign a consent form of, I mean, I know you can't say anything, but. No, but you know, but that paper that Dr.
4: Thompson referred to check the ages of the women, right? You'll be able to determine very quickly how many of them were post-menopausal approximately and how many of them were not right. So I'm not going to say that I was the youngest, just, you know, <laughs> and I'm, I'm turning 40 in July. Right. So I'm not young, but you know, it's, it's, it's Dr. Thompson saying like, it, 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 it does make sense for us to have a, a bigger spread, a bigger variety of who it's been effective in. Is it effective in lean people? Is it effective in fat people? Is it effective in, you know, like, like Marina said, week to week, that's why I'm never in range. That's why I that's why I built my loop because there's so many fluctuations. It feels like if I breathe the wrong way or if there's like a full moon out, it's all over the place. Right. So,
0: so Faith says from what I understand, um, 55 was the cutoff age at least three years ago. Okay. Um, all right. Um, any other questions? Again, I, know I recognize it's 730 and we had said it was a six to seven session. So I want to respect that. But I also want to make sure everyone um, is able to
1: ask a or make um, the comments you want to make. Okay,
0: Melissa has a comment. This has been amazing and I want to have everyone on the meeting um, being for being so incredible. And I think everyone can read the other um, comments. Um, well, thank you so much, Stephanie and Berlin. Um, it really is barely get a chance to meet people who are in these, um, you know, groundbreaking studies. I mean, honestly, like 15 people in a study and, and we had the largest study site um, for biocyte. And so it's, you know, because um, I was telling Stephanie how, um, you know, I, I encounter so many adults with type one. And I never encountered anyone who was in a, the biocide trial. But when I realized it was only fifteen people, no wonder I haven't talked to anyone. But even like Berlin with you, islet transplants. I don't. I. I. I don't know many. I don't know anyone other than you who's um, undergone one, much less three. So um, it's really such a pleasure and privilege to have you all share your experiences. Um, Thanks everyone for attending tonight. Um, Our next huddle in March, April is going to be parenting um, as someone with type one. So if you guys are parents are going to be parents or have been parents and want to hear what other people's experiences are, please feel free to um, join us next month. We've got three moms. um, And if you're a dad with kids, um, please let us know. we Just didn't happen to have any representation, but we're happy to have dads on the panel as well. So have a great night and thanks again for um, coming. Thank you again, Stephanie and Berlin. It was great to have you. Thank
1: you very much. Bye Bye. Thanks everybody. Good luck.